Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oh, ce danger revient de plus en plus souvent dans la surface de Ramsdale. Peu de garde, quelle ouverture pour Martinelli Martinelli en vitesse, en 1 contre 1 devant Sanchez Martinelli incroyable, incroyable passe de Degarde Superbe finition de Martinelli Et de nouveau, Arsenal, une fois de plus Incroyable 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 passe de Degarde Incroyable Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you and goodly new year to you as well. Thank you very much, Andrew, for those kind wishes. It has been a lovely start to the year, especially from an Arsenal perspective. 2023, the best year ever so far, do you think? I think so. I mean, 23 is genuinely my (laughs) favourite number. I know. I remember you uh, talking about this before. Yeah. So I've got high hopes. The number of, you know, Andrea Sharvin, Nicholas Bentner, um, Daniel Welbeck. Did Sol Campbell wear 23? Sol Campbell, big Sol, was yeah. the maybe most illustrious of all the all the names. Um, yeah, I have high hopes this could be a very good year. So have you have and, you been waiting for this year your entire life, basically? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have. I guess I have. For those who don't know, the, the history of this is that as a teenager, I became convinced that I was seeing the number 23 everywhere. Um, a fear and feeling that was only heightened when Jim Carrey then made a film called The Number 23 about exactly that experience. Um, <laughs> but apparently there is some sort of logic to it. It's a low prime and thus a notable number. And so there is some kind of theory about it. But where were you seeing it? Like car number plates, bus yeah, routes? Yeah, exactly. Like every, it, I felt like every car number plate, if I was given a room in a hotel, it was, you know, 23 or 423. Or, right. Um, you know, just it was popping up left, right, and center all over the place. And uh, yeah, I, I sort of became quite fixated with it. So, I mean, it, through the, this year, that's going to go through the roof, I imagine, that sensation. Well, I mean, I don't know what anybody's worrying about now when it comes to football and the title and all of that kind of stuff. It's surely written. It's predestined for that's you. That's true, actually. As an artist, all fan, sit back yeah. and relax. Exactly. Don't worry about the schedule or yellow cards or injuries or, or any of it. It has been written, and it's been a long time coming. Because you know you weren't alive in nineteen twenty three, so no twenty twenty three is it. This is the year. This is the time. Just seeing who won the league in uh, nineteen twenty three. 
probably someone know. like Huddersfield. I think it, Huddersfield was 1924, I think, <laughs> to this. Come on, Andrew, everyone knows that. Uh, Champions Liverpool wow. in 1922, 2300 years ago. Um, Arsenal were not, at that point in time, in the top division. Oh, no, they were. They were 11th. They were 11th. 11th. Which is very like one. Mm. It's it's lots of ones. One T one, yeah. One T one. Who knows? Yes, it's all predestined, and we are definitely going to win the league. And you can quote me on it. <laughs> you can get a tattoo. I have New to, Year. <laughs> I have to get that tattoo, don't I? I said I'd get yeah. that tattoo if we won the league. What is it? What was it of? The passion, clarity. Energy, you know, the little Mikel Arteta oh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I think I said it on this podcast that if we won the league this year, I would get that as a tattoo. That's good. <laughs> I mean, that's a great tattoo to get. I mean, I'd love it, you know, because we'd win the league. Yeah. I just absolutely love it. It's about where, you know, um, considering I would probably have to provide pictorial evidence of this, I'm not going to get it on my arse. So, no, no, no. no. No, you need need to show it off. Fitting as that would be, yes, for an ass cast and an Arsenal title win, it sure would. So let's talk about Brighton two, Arsenal four on New Year's. Let's talk about that first because there was a lot else to enjoy this weekend. There certainly was. There certainly. Let's talk about that first. Yeah, the really good stuff we should talk about first, and. I mean, it was a, you know, in the end, a, a pretty enthralling kind of game that looked like it should have been more comfortable for Arsenal considering the scoreline at various points in the game. You know, 3-0 up just into the second half. They got one back. It goes to 4-1. Got a little bit hairy, scary towards the end. I think what I liked about this is the fact that we... I don't know if you call it a wobble per se, but we certainly had a couple of moments in this game where we didn't necessarily control it the way that we should have. And we gave Brighton, uh, you know, a glimmer of hope more than once. But I I feel like there's always going to be a game or two like that in a season. Um, You know, we've had seasons where there's seasons like that, you know, where uh, every game is a bit up and down and you give the op- uh, the opposition more opportunity than you would like. But the fact that we went away from home and scored four goals against a Brighton team, who I think are a good, a good side, they really use the ball very well. We've had problems with them in the past. They've caused us, you know, they've taken points off us. They've been difficult opponents. You know, even with that wobble, the fact that we went and scored four goals to go seven points clear then at the top of the table, responding to the Manchester City thing and everything else, it's just so pleasing because you can analyze and talk about the things that you didn't do as well as you would like from a position of, um, I was going to say intense comfort. I don't know if that's quite right, but Hmm. you know what I mean? But from a very comfortable position, we can lie back in our top of the table hammocks and look at the 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 bits that didn't go well um without much of the stress you know it's nice yeah i mean it's often said that for a coach it's kind of the the ideal outcome is the imperfect win you know you get the security of the points and the result but you get things that you can tweak and look at um mm. in the week and and this i guess a bit like west ham would be filed 
it very much in that draw. Um, but it is a really good result. I mean, you know, I said, let's focus on the Arsenal game, but it's almost impossible to talk about it without talking about the Manchester City result mm. because that happened before and created that dual thing of opportunity and pressure. You know, yeah. and you always find yourself wondering how the team might handle that. And this was not an easy fixture. You know, I agree with you. They're a very good side. I saw them in the League Cup beat us pretty comfortably at the Emirates Stadium. Again, not our first 11, but a strong-ish mm-hmm. Arsenal side. Swept us aside. And I think, you know, they, they were coming off their best result and best performance of the season, pretty much. Um. And to get any sort of result against Brighton was great. To get one where we put four away and played some mm. scintillating attacking football at times. And in the context of what it meant for the table and for our title challenge, uh, which I think everyone agrees is something we are currently mounting. I think you can't yeah. get away from it anymore. No, you can't. You can't ignore that. No. Um even if you do, you know, you, I, I think the the interview with Saka and Odegaard after the game was quite interesting because, you know, they were asked about Manchester City dropping points and, you know, was that on their minds? And, and Odegaard said, you know, the, the prescribed stuff about how, well, you know, we only focus on ourselves. We don't care about the other teams. And Saka mm-hmm. basically said the same thing, right? But Mikel Arteta came out and, and he was asked about that and he basically said, yeah, of course, we know the result. We know the result. We know what uh, three points would mean in the context of that result. And again, it's sort of you know more of the one game at a time thing. But what I think is quite pleasing about this is it's not the first time that we face this scenario this season where City have dropped points and we play next and we know we've got an opportunity or We've had a situation where City have played before us, you know what I mean, and cut the gap to yeah. two points, but then we've had to go out and play the game and extend that gap again. And we've we've done it pretty much every time. So I think our ability to is compartmentalize not quite the right word, but to to deal with the extra bit of pressure or opportunity that comes with uh, a bad result for other title challengers, I think it's been a really impressive part of this season. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and admittedly, we are still in the relatively early stages um, and that level of pressure Mm. will increase as time goes on. But so far, we've handled it magnificently. And by the way, (laughs) what an opportunity we will have tomorrow night against Newcastle Mm. to extend our lead at the top of the table, admittedly, having played a game more than Manchester City to 10 points with a win, which would be quite an extraordinary opportunity. But coming back to Brighton, the way we came out of the blocks, I think told you a lot about the team's Mm. mentality and the way in which they were determined to seize the chance that was in front of them. I think so. I mean, the the goal... um the finish and the touch from Saka was was excellent and that, i think the first 5 6 minutes arsenal were were really really on top in this game um could have been 2-0 of course inchenko i mean it would have been a penalty if the ball hadn't fallen to saka's feet the way it did uh oh that's interesting i hadn't spotted that myself yeah you could, i mean i think it's is it colwell 
um, centre half. Right. He just sticks his arm out. I mean, it's definitely an arm. Uh, I don't think it's like denying a goal-scoring opportunity or anything because the ball is flashing across the box. It's already taken one deflection, but he does put an arm out. Um, I mean, it's a moot yeah. point anyway, but you know, I think we would have had another opportunity at goal had that not uh, fallen as kindly as it did for Bakayo Saka. And again, a um, bit like the goal the other day, the first touch in an instant in the box allowed him then to just apply the finish. Yeah, there were a couple of things I thought that were reminiscent of uh, the West Ham game. The way Thomas Partey <clears throat> won the ball back mm. you know, was, uh, it might have been the sack of goal. I forget one of the goals, certainly against West Ham. He did exactly the same thing with a kind of reaching tackle inside their half. And the, yeah, the quality of the first touch from Saka was, was fantastic. And just as he produced it against West Ham, I mean, that thing of goals... Goals beget goals to a certain extent. Mm. You know, they improve a player's confidence in those areas. He does seem so much more composed, is the word, inside the penalty area. When the chances come, he's not snatching at anything um, and we're reaping the benefits. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, you know, those opening minutes, I think we could have scored again. I mentioned the Zinchenko, was it from, um, it was from a Martinelli pass, I think, where he just turned and the goalkeeper, uh, the goalkeeper saved. Um, yeah. And there was the, I, mean, I know it wasn't right at the start of the game. I think Brighton had got back into it, but the, the, there was the other amazing piece of skill from Martin Odegaard, a taste of things to come. The, the sort of nutmeg uh, in the box was just amazing as well. Yeah, it? that was about 20 minutes in. Yeah. Um, Odegaard, I thought, started the game well, he had a very good game all round, but he started brilliantly. I mean, even the first goal, I don't know if you remember, but mm. in the build-up to it, he sort of went on this driving run from the right-hand side towards yeah, the yeah, penalty yeah. box. And um, you could just see he had the the bit between his teeth. And that piece of skill inside the penalty box, it's such a shame that, uh, you know, Martinelli was denied because... Wow, what an assist that would have been. Incredible uh, footwork. Yeah, it really was. They got very excited. I download the game afterwards, you know, and uh, I download a Spanish language version of it just to see if there's anything in the uh, in the commentary I can use for a jingle, um, which not this time. We have a different kind of jingle at the start of this one, but I'll just play you this commentary. Listen to how excited they get at the pass from um, from Martin Odegaard. Clara Martinelli, pero no sabe ni cuándo ni cómo. A ver qué se puede inventar el brasileño. Ahí va el Paulista buscando Madre mia, he says. <laughs> Justifiably um, so. I yeah, think. yeah. But I mean, it, it is a measure of his increasing confidence in and around the box that he can execute something like that. Um, you know, he's just a remarkably enjoyable footballer to watch, isn't he? Uh, mm. the, the sort of range of what he can do with a football, you know, in that tight space that's incredible skill. And then later in the game, which I'm sure we'll come to, the vision and the execution of that pass to Gabriel Martinelli for the fourth goal was just sensational. Of course, he scored as well. <laughs> it was sort of forgetting that, you know, he did score the second goal. He did score the second goal. I mean, he's a guy who... He's just sort of experiencing that sensation of flow right now, yeah. you know, where he is on top of his game and confidence is coursing through him. And I think he's realising, uh, you know, the way in which he can affect the team, affect the game. 
the way in which he can dictate things. And yeah, I mean, very few people are playing at his level in this league, I think, at this point in time. Just technically, he's absolutely mm. outstanding. But he's coupling that with, you know, really hard work, great leadership qualities, um, such invention and imagination on the ball. Uh, he was yet again brilliant, I thought. And it's interesting, though. I mean, the second goal, uh, it comes from... If you if you watch it back, it comes from a move that starts back with the goalkeeper and one of those sort of uh, bisecting passes that takes a few Brighton players out of the game, go mm. up, win the corner. It's a nice move. And Odegaard takes up a really good position, edge of the box. It's him and Zinchenko there. And, you know, I, I saw the finish and I kind of thought, well, you know, he's got a bit lucky there. He sort of slightly mishit that. But when I saw his <laughs> post-match interview, he seemed to be quite sort of defensive of it as a goal. And he's playing so well that I'm starting to wonder, I don't know, is that exactly what he meant to do? Like, I couldn't rule it out with him. No, you can't. I mean, I think maybe because of the way the ball was spinning, that's what he tried to do. Like, did he deliberately say, I'm going to knock it into the ground and it's going to spin up and over? I mean, I think you know, the outcome was uncertain, but I think what he tried to do with the ball, I think he meant that. Yeah. I think he Very meant Very possibly, it. because yeah. when he was sort of asked about it on, uh, was it Sky yeah, it's, after that's the a game? Great, it's a great goal. What are you talking about? Yeah. 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 I mean, he, maybe he was just, he's playing us for fools there, but I bought it. Um, well, you know, after his shot assist to Saka the other day, you know, this, this guy, <laughs> he's got all the tricks. <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know. But, uh, yeah, he's just flying at the moment. And the goals are flying in for him. I mean, that's seven now, which mm. is really respectable uh, tally. And something else to say from this game is it's a, a, another game where, you know, the front four were all on the score sheet. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's a very pleasing aspect to it. Mikel Arteta spoke about that afterwards as well, that, you know, all of his uh, front players got on the score sheet. Um, I mean, the... First half, I mean, we did sit off a little bit against yeah. Brighton. You know, percent possession we had in the first half. 33. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I think we ended up only with something like 32. Mm. 32% possession in the game and, you know, um, scored four goals and could have possibly have scored more, you know. Um, Even at half time, we 33% possession, but we were leading 8-3 on shots. I mean, that speaks to a kind of efficiency to to our attacking game, which I think is really interesting because that's dominant, right? That's a dominant stat, but it comes without dominating possession and dominating territory. So, I don't know, maybe well, there's I an examination. territory yeah. was slightly distinct in that I think a lot of Brighton's possession was kind of knocking it around at the back. And sure. It didn't, in the first half at least, make great inroads um, towards our goal. Mm -hmm. You know, where we had the ball, we were able to get into attacking areas quite quickly. And I think, yeah, we were clinical. Um, and I don't mean clinical necessarily just in terms of the the chances that came to us. We, I mean, arguably we could have scored more goals in that first half, but in terms of converting possession mm. into opportunities, we were very good. I yeah. Think, on the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so 2 nil at 2 nil at the break. Um and the second half started in pretty decent fashion with a with a goal very early. Uh, I think it was just a, a minute in. Um mm. 
Yeah, well, it was a minute into the first half and basically a minute into the second. Yeah, and we cut out a Brighton attack. Um, Saka then to Odegaard, uh, to Partey, to Martinelli. And I thought this was really interesting because Lamptey had defended pretty well against Gabriel Martinelli in the first half. Yeah. Um, and Martinelli, I think on the occasions where he was facing him one-on-one, came back in on his right foot every time. And Lamptey defended well. He blocked one shot in particular, which was a really outstanding piece of, of defending. But this time around, Martinelli went outside, took the shot with his left foot, too, too hot for the goalkeeper to hold. And I don't know that there's really anybody that you would want sniffing around from a couple of yards out than Eddie and Kedia, because mm-hmm. we know, uh, you know, he scores a lot of goals from very close range, right? Um, it's kind of his speciality. But Martinelli's left foot is not something that gets discussed a great deal. I think three of his seven goals this season have come with his left foot. Yeah, just last just last game against yeah. West Ham. And course. someone uh, pointed out to me on Twitter. I'm sorry, I can't uh, remember who that was. Uh, go back maybe uh, and see if I can find it. Um, that it's Nishant Gunner Ten at Nishant Gunner Ten who said that the goal that was disallowed against Manchester United was also with his left foot. So Martinelli's left foot gives him this ability to go both ways. You know, which I think is a is a sort of underrated aspect to to his attacking threat. Yeah, definitely, and I think it's only going to make him harder for fullbacks to live with. And you know, we've seen the benefit of Saka doing that, going on the outside using his right, and Martinelli's now doing the same on the left flank. And I don't think the Brighton goalkeeper had a great day, to be honest with you, and he probably won't reflect too happily upon this goal, but. Eddie and Ketch is there and he is that poacher. You know, some players are, some strikers are penalty box players. He really is a six yard box player. He scores yeah. a lot of goals in that <laughs> six yard box. He sure and, does. Uh, yeah, I mean, two and two for him. So I think it's interesting, isn't it? Even if he'd performed at this all round level and had shown himself to be, you know, an improving team player and someone who can help the attack function, I think that would have been all well and good. But for a player like him who kind of lives and dies on his goal scoring record, those two goals and two games are going to just, I think they'll do the world of good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, it, when you look at it, the goal again, I mean, it looks kind of simple. And I suppose it is in some ways kind of simple. But the movement and the anticipation, you know, because he sort of lurks behind, I think it's yeah. Dunk. Um, there's a little shimmy isn't there yeah. just to get into that near post space yeah he just lurks behind him and then as the as the shot comes in like I think his reaction is quicker than the defender the, the defender kind of just assumes that the goalkeeper is going to hang on to it mm-hmm. but Eddie Nketiah makes the makes the move on the basis that well you never know goalkeeper might fumble this he did and I think that's smart movement as well it's smart center forward play because you could make that move, you know, 10 times, 12 times in a game and nothing happens, you know, but um, he made it count. I think your point about goals for him is, is interesting because the, the worry that we had about uh, Gabriel Jesus being absent, I think it's still a worry. I think that, you know, there are uh, questions about depth and no doubt we'll talk about those a bit later on, but you know, 
he's come in, he started two games, he scored in both of those games. I think he's put in a, a decent shift. I think he was absolutely knackered by the end of by the end of this game. Um, but the goals will do his confidence the world of good. And I think the other thing is that I'm sure there were teams looking at Arsenal without Gabriel Jesus and kind of thinking, mm, you know, this could be a this could be a moment for them to wobble. Um, and I just think the 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 perception of us as a strong side continues without Gabriel Jesus. And I think that's that's kind of important, you know, given where we are in the table, that weaknesses or perceived weaknesses don't manifest themselves when you're missing a big player. Absolutely, yeah. It sent a it sent a really strong message that Eddie's come in and immediately delivered and you know the rest of the Premier League will, will doubtless have taken note of that. Um, shout out as well, just watching the goal back to William Saliba, who manages to get to Eddie Nketiah for the celebrations first, despite playing right centre-back. He's uh, the, the, quite, new, quite the, sprint. the new Cedric, that's what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very much so. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it wasn't his best performance, but I wouldn't go that far. Um, yeah, so that was a brilliant time to score because the end of the first half... I. There were a couple of things that frustrated me I didn't mention right in the first half. I felt like Arsenal picked up two very nothingy bookings right yes. at the end of the half. We yeah, we we had some questions about the refereeing. So I don't know if you wanna I mean we can talk about it now. Why not? Let's talk about it now. I mean the Gab the Gabrielle booking was uh was kinda ridiculous. Yeah. I, I think he was booked because the ref had a bit of a, an issue with Aaron Ramsdale doing a bit of time wasting. Um, I mean, we had a question from Fies, who's at the Jackal underscore 80. He said, have you ever seen a booking handed out for time wasting in the first half of a match? It's insignificant now, but it wasn't then. And I think, you know, Gabrielle getting yellow cards worries me just a little bit because there has been a bit of previous there where he's been booked and then something rash happens and, um, you know, the first booking might be a little bit innocuous. Remember against Man City where of course. he got booked for, we don't quite know what, maybe some dissent and then there's the, the, the foul on, on Gabriel Jesus and he ended up getting sent off. So I think Gabriel was waiting. I could be wrong because they didn't really show it on the TV, but I think he was, was he waiting for Ramsdale to come up and take the free kick? And then he I, got booked. I, I don't know because I didn't really see. It. I was watching on TV too, so I didn't see. Um, but it was. It felt like it was for absolutely nothing, and and mm. I think it was Partey as well, which again felt quite soft. I thought. Um, yeah, he was booked, and 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 that that alarmed me a little. I I just thought wrongly ultimately that if there was going to be a way for Brighton to get back into the game, it might come via a red card. So to get that goal mm. the other side of half time, uh, it settled a lot of those. Nerves and anxiety. I was a bit suspicious of the the referee. I have to say, yeah, I was a little bit worried about uh, certain things. And then I'm sort of like, oh, do we need to have the referee discussion, you know, at all? Because sometimes or often it can be quite uh, just pointless, you know, because not much you can do about it. Or is having the referee discussion on a day when you've won and you're top of the league, you're not sort of you're not making excuses for anything if you talk about the referee. But I mean, yeah, how, how big an issue do you think it was? Well, I don't think it was a big issue in deciding the outcome of the game, mm. but I do think that 
those bookings were um, harsh. And I think, you know, we're at a point in the season where bookings carry a lot of weight, potentially, mm. as we'll discuss, no doubt, uh, when it comes to Bukayo Saka and, and William Saliba. Yes, yes. Um, so look, 3-0 up and Mikel Arteta made two substitutions. Was uh, that at 3-0, just to, rem- to remind me? It was at 3-0. It was at 3-0. Um, I'm just going to go back and check the timing of those uh, substitutions. Um, 60 minutes, 61st minute, White and Zinchenko off, Tommy Asu and Tierney on. What what do you make of the decision to take both fullbacks off at the same time? Do you think that's maybe a little bit, a bit uh, too much uh, instability? In your back four, because uh, you know that that is two two players from a back four that had been I'm not going to say completely untroubled, but were um, not that troubled in the game. Did it destabilize us, or is it a case that when you've got players of the quality of Tommy Asu and Tierney, you can feel confident that you you can replace you know Ben White and Alexander Zinchenko with these two guys? It is not like bringing on Cedric and Andre Santos, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of one of the old football truisms, isn't it? That you kind of, you don't change a back four. It can destabilise the team. I yeah. don't know if it stands up in a kind of five subs era, you know, where mm. we're used to seeing players rotate on and off a little bit more. I think it I think it probably did unsettle us a little. Um, but I'm not sure how... I'm not sure how much it matters if it makes any sense in that if there is a time to take that risk mm. uh, where where that level of risk is acceptable, it has to be when you're 3-0 up in a game. Like if there is a time where you can say, right, we might lose a bit of stability doing this, but I'm going to rest two players. I'm going to give minutes to two others. Surely 3-0 up with yeah. an hour on the clock is a reasonable time to kind of make that gamble. Yeah, know? I mean, maybe the maybe the um, the benefit of those substitutions will be seen tomorrow night. Well, well, that's what that's what I think. I think they were substitutions that were as much about this period of games and how much football's been, everyone's been asked to play, and the, the, the possibility that we may have to call on Tomiyasu. You know, William Saliba is one game away from a ban, and I would say. Takiro Tomiyasu is probably the the next member of the back four to step up, you know, off the bench and play potentially. Mm. To be able to get some minutes into him, even if they weren't his best minutes and even if they weren't our best minutes, I think that was the value. Yeah. Um, did it help us on the night against Brighton? I don't think it did. Um, no, I don't think it did either. I mean, Tomiyasu... Um... I think he gave the ball away for uh, maybe the first goal or, or the, the second one. I'm not 100% sure. And I think he got pulled centrally, which allowed Mitoma in behind him. Um, and and what was, I think what was interesting, if you want to call it that, is the fact that all of a sudden when we took Ben White off, there was a ball over the top for Brighton that was on time and time again that that wasn't there. Uh, previously, 
Now, maybe they just didn't try it. Maybe I'm putting two, two and two together and coming up with five. But I felt when Ben White went off, we were vulnerable to a ball over the top, down that sort of inside left channel from a, an attacking Brighton perspective. Um, and that's where pretty much all their joy came from, mm. um, from an attacking perspective. You know, not just the first goal, but the second goal too. Um the potential third goal that was uh, thankfully ruled out. So I do think it destabilized us, but I kind of agree with you that in the context of this game and this season and what we've got to face tomorrow night, we might look back on that decision and say, okay, it didn't really work out, but um, we've, we've put in a good show against Newcastle. We've got our first choice fullbacks out there and they're doing their thing and, you know, hopefully they can help us to, to three points. And I think that might be how we judge, ultimately how we judge those changes. Yeah, and ultimately, I, I mean, I may be wrong about this, but I'm sure there have been games or a game this season where we have, when the need, lead has been more slender, brought on Tierney and Tomiyasu to help see out matches mm. and it's been a successful endeavor so you know I don't want to say it was it was purely experimental and you know could never have worked because I think there have been times when we you know bringing on more natural defenders maybe in those positions has been beneficial um just on this occasion on this night uh it, it did seem to cost us but I don't think it was the only factor and uh it's not been many occasions this season where I have been sort of too critical of any individual player and probably least of all this individual player because he's been so outstanding. But I really did think William Saliba had quite a difficult night. Um, I thought he was some way short of his best. I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, the 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 second Brighton goal is a big mistake. That is yeah. a, that's a big mistake. And that's the kind of situation that we've seen him deal with countless times this season, you know, with real assurance uh, and calmness and everything else. So look, it's, it's not been a brilliant two games for him in, no. uh, in the post world cup uh, fixture list. Right. I think, you know, he didn't really deal particularly well with the, with the ball for the, the West Ham penalty. This was a big mistake. No two ways about it. Um, but I think mistakes are always going to happen with young central defenders. That is a reality of life as a defender, you know, whether you're uh, 21, 22, you know, all defenders make mistakes. I think maybe it's not the worst thing in the world for him to make a mistake in a game like this that we've, you know, gone on to win with a fairly uh, comprehensive scoreline. Um, I just think the idea that, that he can be perfect every single game is is just not right. I mean, I think he's an incredible talent. I think he's a, a fantastic player. He's had a brilliant season. But let's not forget the fact that he's 21 and this is his first season in, in English football. Um, he has also come back from a World Cup, which might well have kind of, uh, how would you say, destabilized, not quite, but you know what I mean? He had a, a significant amount of momentum going into this World Cup. He's then gone, sat on the bench, watched his country lose the World Cup final. I think that's a lot to to deal with. Um, you know, I'm not saying in the grand scheme of things it's the biggest problem anyone's ever going to face in the world, but I think we have to apply that context to 
you know, what we've seen from him in the last couple of games. And I don't think it's coincidence that he's gone away, um, didn't play for 44 days, whatever it is, and has come back a little bit below par. Yeah, I mean, I alluded to this last week, but that, that there were some concerns at Arsenal when he returned about his sharpness and his condition, given the fact that he'd been away for a substantial period of time and had not been playing games. And obviously the club have decided that the best way to quickly get him back up to speed is for him to play games, right? They're, they're not going to hold him back. They're going to put him out on the pitch. That's the only way to regain that level of sharpness. I think that there is an element of rust there. I mean, I, I always make notes as I go through the game and I, I don't think the mistake he made on the goal was an isolated incident. Like in the first half, you know, I've written down a couple of times, Saliba misjudgment, Saliba poor clearance, looks mm. rusty. And I don't think I was looking for it. I think I think he, he is a notch off where he was. I do wonder if... I'm, I remember Arsene talking about Sol Campbell. And he, when Sol Campbell ever came back from injury or suspension or absence, it would often take him several games to kind mm. of find his rhythm. And Arsene used to use a analogy of talking about like a... He said he's a heavy machine. You know, and it takes a little bit of time to get him going again. And I do think that may be true for Saliba. Like, he may just be one of those players who really benefits from that rhythm of competition. Mm. Um, but the great news is we've won these games yeah. when he's not been at his best. And hopefully that 180 minutes he's got in the tank now will stand him in good stead for, for bigger tests to come. Yeah, and look... Hopefully those couple of games and, you know, you can get refocused and you get minutes into legs. And I think that's true as well to an extent for, for Tommy Asu, you know, who's yeah. come back from the World Cup. Those minutes could be really important for him, even if they weren't, you know, his best his best minutes. Um, no, he badly needs a, a sustained run of football, Tommy Asu. I mean, the, the calendar year he had in 2022 was so interrupted, wasn't it, by various yeah. injury problems. Yeah, so. for sure, for sure. And um, to be fair, we responded brilliantly to Brighton's first goal. We certainly did, uh, even though the fourth goal came from, you know, quite a dangerous move from Brighton. They played, mm -hmm. again, got down that sort of inside left channel into the box, ball across. Thomas Partey was there. I think... One of the things about Partey's performance isn't just the sort of winning the ball back uh, with a with a tackle or, you know, a piece of uh, defensive play. I think his positioning in this game was outstanding. Mm. Where he was, how he dropped in to anticipate the potential danger from Brighton players was really important. I think it could have been, could have been the... The third goal, I think we already talked about it maybe, but, you know, he dropped back into the box, Brighton played the ball across and he was there and from there the move started for, for the third goal. And oh, this one, the fourth, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, 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 but they, he did it for the third goal and also I did it for the, for the fourth goal where he was there in the box to um, pick up the cross. You know, from, from there, what we saw from Martin Odegaard was just, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the move develop, he's quite away from from Granit Xhaka, who has the ball out on the left-hand side. And space opens up and Odegaard just sprints into it really quickly. And as he's doing so, you can see him look up a couple of times 
to see where Martinelli is. He said he saw the space. He knew that Martinelli was quick. And if he put the ball in the right, I mean, it is just the most perfect pass uh, I can remember for a very long time. The, the precision, the weight of it, just unbelievable. Yeah, shades of Seth Fabregas, shades of Dennis Burkamp, I think, in the vision and yeah. the execution. It, it, it looks like he's just coming deep to give Shaka an option because Shaka's sort of looking up and there's not a great deal yeah. ahead of him. Yeah. And Odegaard, it looks like, oh, he's just, I'll oh, come here, I'll just give you a wall pass, you know, quick eight yard pass. But then to execute that first time as well, it's a stunning, stunning piece of play. And I think we also have to say, yes, Odegaard scans. Yes, he looks for it. He spots it. Huge credit to him for that. Mm. But this also comes from a team that is playing together regularly and learning about each other. Odegaard knows if he receives the ball in that position at any point in any game, he's got a guy on the left wing on a motorbike yeah. running in behind the fullback, you know? And but I think he's I, got that picture in his head. Yeah, but I also think that... Martinelli knows that he's got a player like Odegaard who can make that pass. Yeah. You know what I mean? So if you look at the anticipation of Martinelli, there's a great angle from above or sort of um, there's one from behind, but there's one from above as well, where you can see him look and see, okay, Odegaard's going to get this. I'm going to just get on my bike and if he plays the pass, then, you know, I've got a chance to burn beyond Lamptey, who's no slouch in fairness. And Martinelli absolutely, um, absolutely raced beyond him. And I think and, he's and got finished. quicker, Martinelli. I really do. I think he's added, he was always quick, but I think he's added an element of explosiveness in his sprinting. I mean, to get beyond Lamptey like that is yeah. hugely impressive. He's, he's got it's, fast legs, doesn't he? He's a fast leg guy. <laughs> yeah. Roadrunner style. I, he, he, it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant goal. I have to be honest, I watched the whole second half on my feet. I was watching it on TV and because it was quite an end-to-end -end game and because of the stakes and the consequences, mm. I was very invested. And um, I, yeah, I stood for the whole thing. And I, I have to be honest, I was screaming at Martelli to square it when he went through <laughs> a goal. Uh, and of course he doesn't and he gets the goal. So fair play to him. Um, but yes, I have. I I was desperate for him to pass. I, I saw a lot of people talk about that afterwards, and you know, people on Twitter saying he's he's got to pass there, he's got to pass there, and I just think it's the most pointless argument to try and have when he's actually scored. Like if he yeah. didn't score, I think there's <laughs> there's all kinds of criticism you can apply there. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I just don't see the point when he scores the goal that he did with a little toe poke as well between the keeper's legs. Um, Something I've noticed about Martinelli is he has obviously that real hunger to score goals and real desire to score mm. goals. And arguably two of the goals in this game, I'm thinking of Saka's goal and Nketiah's, come as a consequence of Martinelli trying to score a goal. Do you mm. know what I mean? Like yeah, I, yeah. I think... But I think in both instances, re really, he's thinking, can I put this in the back of the net? But, and, and it's kind of a, I hesitate to use the word a selfish trait, but there is that kind of element in him of like, I want my goal. But what I love is when the ball breaks and it's put in by Saka or it's put in by Nketiah, mm. he celebrates so 
wildly. <laughs> like that individualistic streak in him is it exists alongside an amazing team ethic. You know, if I think of players who were sort of obsessed with their own goal scoring or who would, you know, be a bit selfish in penalty box situations, I mean, I guess the, the sort of worst example would be, or the best example would be Cristiano Ronaldo. And But there's none of the sort of sulking when it's not about him in mm. Martinelli, which I really love. Like, he's able to be... At the same time, selfish, but in a way that actually quite helps the team and hugely unselfish in the way he works and the way he's part of the group. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, he does love scoring goals. And I think, you know, that that fourth goal is a great illustration of that. You know, he backed yeah. himself to score in that position, having run through. He backed himself to apply the finish, and he did. Well. It, yeah, it is. It's, it's good contact he makes. Yeah, it's kind of like a five-a-side finish or something. I'm not, mm. um, you know, and it's, um, yeah, the percentage was to play the ball to Bukayo Saka for sure. But, uh, look, it's just a brilliant goal. I think in, in the context of the pass, would it have been a better goal if he'd played it to Saka? Or finished himself. I kind of think finishing himself. I think he took it on. He thought Martin deserves an assist for this. You know, I, yeah, I yeah, let him yeah, down yeah. when he when he did the magic <laughs> footwork in the box in the first half. I didn't get him an assist for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, you know, I can't be having this. I can't have that pass filed as an Alex Kleb pre-assist. Pre-assist. Yeah, let's, that's let's it. get him the stat. There you go. There's that team ethic you're thinking of. Exactly right. right. Um, <laughs> and if we, I, the thing is, you know. Brighton's goals that got them back into the game, the first and second, they followed quite, you know, they they came, at the times they came, they sort of injected an element of jeopardy that mm. I think was maybe not quite as great as it felt, but it just sort of kept the contest alive and allowed them to grow and build. I mean, they scored very quickly after the mm. our fourth, didn't they? It was about five minutes, maybe less than that. Uh, let me have a look here. Um, 71 minutes, 77 minutes. And so, yeah, five, yeah. five six minutes probably. Um, I mean, yeah, we've talked about the, the Individual error. I think maybe, I mean, obviously, I don't think the goalkeeper anticipates what's going to happen there, but when he watches it back, he's, he ends up sort of diving over the ball. I don't, I'm not quite clear what happens. Kind of, but I think, I think you have to give the um, the striker some credit there because he takes a tiny touch as the ball breaks, um, you know, bounces off Saliba. He gets the tiniest touch right. and then just pokes it through Ramsdale's legs. So I think it's... I think it's just a smart bit of centre-forward play, to be honest, rather oh, than... Oh, yeah, there's a little drag back, isn't yeah. there? He's sort of dummy shot. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a decent finish. But, yeah, uh, ugly from an Arsenal perspective anyway. It was. And look, the final few minutes could have been could have been more uh, nervy had the third goal stood for the you know the tightest of margins when it comes to an offside. Um, you know, because... He did bring on Mohamed Elneny for Thomas Partey, which again, I think, you know, that was at 4-1. Mm -hmm. Again, an understandable substitution to make with Newcastle in mind on on Tuesday. Um, take off a guy who, you know, we know has had some injury problems. You, you feel pretty confident at 4-1 up with, you know, 20 minutes to go. 
that you can hang on. Um, but I don't think that necessarily helped us too much either. Um, well, well, Partey, Zinchenko and White. Mm, they're pretty uh, pivotal. Yes. I mean, they are kind of, particularly in possession, yeah. I think. You know, they are sort of the hub of the team in some respects. So maybe no surprise that we lacked a bit of structure and a bit of direction without those guys. Um, VAR was, uh, well, we were grateful for VAR on this occasion, yeah. I suppose. Um, it spared us a slightly nervy last few minutes. But, but uh, Rob Holding holding on. Um, well, indeed, yeah, Rob Holding poking the ball beyond yeah, Ramsdale, Ramsdale on that fourth yeah. one, unfortunately. Um, I, I, I have to be honest as well, on this, this loud goal, I don't think it's great defending again. I think we look mm. a little bit sloppy. Matoma sort of, you know, rides a couple of challenges pretty easily. Um, and they seem sharper on a quick throw than we do. Maybe a little bit of fatigue from some players as well. Um, but... I was delighted when it was ruled out. I did, I'll be honest, have visions of, oh, this is the game. Yeah, this where is it the one. <laughs> Your bad feeling almost came My bad came feeling. Through. I had another bad feeling. Um, but I suppose when you go away from home in the Premier League and you score four goals, something genuinely extraordinary has to happen for you to not win. Oh, we've seen it at St. James's <laughs> Park. Don't worry about that. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Bringing back up those old traumas. Yeah, don't worry, we're not playing Newcastle soon. But um, fortunately, this one didn't count. And and I think Arsenal, you know, that was a wake-up call really to say, come on, guys, this is crazy. We should be home and dry here. Absolutely, Um, absolutely. And, you know, that that was something Arteta said, wasn't it? Afterwards, he said, uh, my excitement comes from going into the dressing room and the players are talking about what they could have done better. You know, which, you know, is an interesting thing for the manager to come out with because, you know, you could say, okay, that wasn't great, lads, but, you know, we've won 4-2 away from home. Nothing to be sniffed at, really. Um, you know, but but some focus on continued improvement is, is nice to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you look at that disallowed third Brighton goal, when it hits the net, there's a lot of anger and recriminations from various Arsenal players. Um, and I don't think the the eventual offside decision would have taken that away. I'm sure, I don't think, I, I, I highly doubt they were sat around having a very civilised conversation about what went wrong in that second half. No. I'm sure, you know, some strong words were used, but I think that's absolutely the right thing. And that's why it's, it's good for a coach when you win, but there are mistakes because it keeps people focused. Keeps people focused for sure. All right. Well, is there anything else from this game that you think we should discuss? I mean, I think we've we've gone through pretty much everything. Yeah, I think um, we've pretty much covered it off. I was intrigued by the Odegaard um, celebration, you know, the, the three-point, the basketball. Oh, the basketball thing, yeah. And then, and then I saw a clip on social media last night of Zinchenko, scoring uh, for Manchester City and doing the same celebration. And if you look at the Odegaard celebration, he's actually with Zinchenko when he does it. So, I so think it what, must be a, what are you saying here? This is a sort of basketball... Who knows? But it, it appears to be something between them. Right. And on the subject of celebrations, Martinelli's got a new one. It's the kind of shark fin, you know. The He, he uh, puts his hand up in front of his 
face, uh, sort of dividing his face in two. And he was asked about it on Brazilian TV and said it's a private thing between the Arsenal players. I cannot tell you what it means. So, What does it mean? What What is it? I don't know. Maybe I it's nothing. Know. Maybe like, it's... Maybe it's nothing. That would, it's I mean, I would nothing. like that. You know, um, what could this possibly mean? Guys, nothing. It's nothing. We're just fooling you. Or, you know, it is, a, you know, um, it's a hint at something. Who knows? Maybe we'll find uh, out in due course. We, we will find out. Maybe it's, maybe it's dividing his face into the duality, the selfishness and the unselfishness. That's, you know. The goal-hungry guy and the team ethic guy. Exactly. Yeah, that must be what it signifies. One other thing on the game, mm. which is just that uh, it was a windy old night at Brighton, as it tends to be. Cam, the wind really whips around that stadium on the south coast. Um, but Arsenal had some uncomfortable moments, I thought, at set pieces. And that's going to be really interesting against Newcastle because that is a real strong suit of their game. Right. Kieran Trippier's delivery and they've got a number of guys who are pretty good in the air, the centre-halves mm. in particular. I was actually... I, I, I don't know if you noticed this. And just one final thing on this. But did you notice Martin Odegaard's role from corners? No, I didn't. He seems to be tasked with dealing with, with whoever it is, right? He's, um, he's, he's obviously got a man, but he's got a role sort of at the near post where he, he doesn't really look at the ball or where the ball is coming from. He's absolutely focused on the man. Mm. And I don't know if this is just his way of defending. I don't know if this is something that he's been told to do. But he sort of looks at the man the whole time and then sort of eventually has a quick look up to see when the ball is coming in. Um, but I noticed it a couple of times in this game and I, did, I didn't um, know quite what it was or whether you'd noticed it as well. So oh, maybe I've, something I've to keep an, an eye, eye on. That. I mean, right. our record defending set pieces has been very good mm. over the last couple of years. I just think it was something I was thinking about before the Brighton, Brighton game in terms of Newcastle and, and where their strengths are. Yeah. And I think... Um, it's going to be an interesting battle. Yeah. It's just because, you know, we, we obviously have improved from set pieces and we have this set piece coach and everything feels prescribed, right? Practiced yep. and, and worked out. So I was just curious as to what that might be with regards to Odegaard. Maybe it was just this game. Maybe they have a, a specific threat that he was uh, being told to look out for. But um, Maybe. We'll have to, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. All right. Okay, we will take a little break here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter, at GunnerBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Excuse me, my voice is still a little bit croaky after um, after the recent um, unwellness and illness, so apologies for that. Um, can I go first? Do you mind? Of course. Uh, stickers on the Discord says, Chapoli morning, gentlemen, and Happy New Year. What do you think of the stat that Orbino tweeted out? And basically it was the fact that um, Bakayo Saka has been booked four times this season and only one player has been booked for a foul on Bakayo Saka. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think... Well, obviously that's a striking stat and I think... Really, there's one half of that that deserves more scrutiny than the other, which is just the one player being booked for a fouls on Saka, um, you know, given the treatment he's subjected to. Admittedly, some of it is quite intelligent in that often they'll rotate the fouls on him and you know, mm. make sure that they just tread the line. But I do think that needs to be more scrutinised, more looked at, and I'd, I'd like to see him refereed, I guess, more fairly. Um mm. As for the other side of that stat, I think Saka has been more physical this season. And part of that is an answer and a response to the treatment he gets. You know, he has to fight back at times. And there is a little bit of a angry streak within him. I've seen him commit one or two slightly petulant or cynical fouls. Mm -hmm. And he's deserved a good deal of those bookings. Don't get me wrong. It's just that feeling of there should be more bookings in the other column too. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think were any of his bookings particularly unfair, and I can't remember them to be honest. No, I, I don't. And think there was actually thing- a moment in the the second half where I had a little heart in mouth moment because he did make a a foul. Yeah. That certainly the Brighton fans were looking for him to be sent off. I mean, I don't think you know you should send a player off. No team should be reduced to ten men for the two fouls that Bakayo Saka committed um, in this game. But at the same time, you've seen it happen more than once. Not yeah. just to had, Arsenal. Had, had you know? he not been booked, I think he probably would have got a yellow for, for that particular challenge. But yeah, it wasn't a bad challenge, but, you know, it's just sort of one of those where the player was getting away from him. Um, I mean, it, it leaves Arsenal in a difficult or stressful, shall we say, position because... Uh, both Saka and Saliba are now one game away from a suspension. One booking, rather, sorry, away from a suspension. Yeah, I had a, and, a follow-up uh, on that one, yeah. Oh, go on. From Stevino, who's at Steve underscore Mallard on Twitter. He said, we have three key players, Saka, Gabriel and Saliba, all on Gabriel four yellow well. cards. Yeah. So one away from suspension. The counter resets to zero. It doesn't reset. It The threshold just gets higher, I think, mm. after, is it 19 games? Yes. It goes up to ten. Is it? Uh, is it eight and then it's or a two ten? game ban? If you get to ten, if I you think. get to ten, yeah. But you do have obviously a bit more um, 
leeway in 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 that. Um, so he says counter resets, um, which he doesn't. But after three more games, but those three games are Newcastle, uh, the North London Derby, and Manchester United. What is the best way, if any, to manage this situation? Um, and I think yes, we're just going to have to. Some people suggest. Oh, could they get booked against Newcastle and then miss the Oxford game? But I'm afraid it no longer works like that. Mm. Uh, the suspension would only apply to the Premier League. I mean, I don't think there is any way to manage it beyond just sort of talking to the players and saying, look, don't do anything stupid. There are always, or there is always going to be the potential to pick up a booking. You know, if you're... Um, if you're making tackles, the two defenders in particular, um, are sort of a little bit surprised that Saliba didn't get a card in in the last two games. To be honest, I think there might have been one or two moments where where that could have happened. Um, I think we we just have to pray, hope, light candles, sacrifice whatever you feel like you need to sacrifice, um, to stay on the right side of the referees because. I would be very, very surprised if all three players got through those three games without a booking. Like at least one of them is gonna is gonna miss one of those games. So we're gonna have to we're just gonna have to deal with it. It's just part and parcel of of the uh, of the way a season goes, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm right saying Gabriel Jesus was on four prior to his injury, and the, uh, you know, mm. I was convinced he would pick up another booking sooner or later, but he managed to get quite through quite a few without it. It is possible, but it does feel unlikely, particularly in the case of the centre-halves. Mm. You know, they go into a lot of collisions, a lot of challenges, and they're playing up against some very tricky forwards in the next few weeks. Um, I, I'd be surprised if they came through that unscathed. It's interesting because, you know, we're talking about the Premier League fixtures uh, you know, what are these, the 17th, 18th, 19th game? I guess ordinarily without the World Cup, these fixtures will be played December time mm. and probably in the space of a couple of weeks. And actually, in a sort of strange way, you almost absorb the suspensions better at that time of year because it's coming in a period where you are rotating the team anyway. Like no one's playing all those games ordinarily in the festive period. Mm. Whereas this time, this time around, it's obviously a, a bit different and they are massive, massive matches. But yeah, I guess we just have to accept it. You know, that's going to be a test of our mm. depth and our options. Mm. Interesting. I, I read a piece um, this morning, Daniel Story. Uh, wrote a piece about sort of the Premier League weekend and his thoughts and findings from it. He was very positive about Arsenal saying, you know, real title challenges. He said, but, you know, there are question marks over depth. And he said, particularly at the back. And I, and I, I think Daniel's brilliant, but I really disagree with that, actually. I think for me, the real depth issue is up the oh, top. Yeah. Like the, the loss of Saka, I think would be uh, substantially worse than the loss of Saliba. Sure, because like... If you miss Saliba or Gabriel for one game, you can play Tommy Asu at right back. You can move Ben White back into centre half. Yeah, um, you can even put Tommy Asu at centre half. You, if you exactly, really want. yeah. You know, so there, there are ways of covering the absences at the back. Whereas I don't think we have the same quality of cover for Bakayo Saka. No, on the right hand side, who play? I mean, Reese Nelson is injured. 
you've got Fabio Vieira. Actually, I've got a question about him now in a minute. Um, so he's, you know, he's an option. Mm-hmm. But I think that would be a much more, especially given how well Saka has been playing since um, since he's come back. And, uh, you know, I think in the last sort of few weeks before the World Cup, he was playing really well also. I think that's a, a much bigger problem for us than missing one of the center halves. For sure. Um, yeah, we're going to just have to, it's, it's, it's a keep fingers crossed tightrope walking act for those guys now, but they can't, I think the thing is, I wouldn't want them to, I wouldn't want it to weigh too heavy in their minds. Every point is so precious that they actually need to play these next three games at hundred percent without that, you know, being a big concern for them as far as possible, particularly the center halves like Saka, I think can get through 90 minutes thinking, right, come on. Don't be stupid. Don't do anything that's going to get me a booking. A centre-half needs to put that out of their mind to perform at their best, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, shall we have another question? Let's. Um, <laughs> I thought this was interesting. Arsenal Down Under said, have you forgotten how stressful title challenges are? Any drop points feel huge. <laughs> Is that something you recognise? Um I think I I know exactly where he's coming from. Absolutely. Because, you know, we're all desperate for it to happen. It's been too long and we can see what a huge opportunity this is. But, you know, I'm, I'm really just trying to enjoy this season as much as I can while it's happening. You know what I mean? Ian Wright said a brilliant thing about this. I thought, I don't know if you've seen that clip. No. I think it was on foreign coverage of the game. And he was talking about exactly that, that, for all the pressure and all the fears that come with that and all the hope and expectation and, and worry and anxiety, Arsenal fans really should just be enjoying this because none of us anticipated it. None of us expected it. We don't know how it's going to end. We don't know how long it will last. So revel in it while it is going on. Well, I I, I can't agree with that more because, look, ultimately the season may end up being disappointing, you know, based on the context of the season. But what we're doing right now and how we're playing and the way we're doing it and, and the feeling and the atmosphere and the the excitement that you can sense almost tangible almost, you know, every time you go to play, it's just you're like you look at that fourth goal and it's just like, oh, that's fucking brilliant. You know, that's just mm-hmm. so much of what you want from football. You know, the, the 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 quality, the technique, the execution, it's kind of thrilling. And I really want to enjoy it while it's happening. Um, so I get where it's, where, um, is it Gunnar Down Under is coming from? Completely, because like every, Arsenal every yeah. Arsenal Down Under, you know, every point that you drop is going to feel awful. But that's true in a, in an average season too. You know, the stakes aren't as high, but it still feels fucking shit when you lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Just our Spurs fans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't know what else to say about it other than I hope we don't drop too many more points, obviously. Um, but wouldn't you rather be in this position than... Like where Spurs are, of course, or where we have been, 
in the last couple of seasons, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I wouldn't swap this, even if at the end of it, the, 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 the potential disappointment is really high because of what we're hoping for. I'd still rather be up there um, trying to win it. So, yeah. Your is it, question. Is it my question? Okay. Uh, let me ask you this one, uh, because there have been some questions about transfers and potential additions to the squad. Yeah. Matt Knight, who's at Mr. Underscore Matt Underscore Knight, says, uh, regarding Zhao Felix, Given the incredible position in which we find ourselves and the potential huge prize slash prizes on offer, is overpaying for securing a top quality versatile forward such as Felix worth it? Ordinarily, the deal is exorbitant, but is this not a unique situation? And this is in the light of a story from your colleagues in The Athletic today that Atletico Madrid are looking for a package of around 21 million euros to secure Zhao Felix on loan for five months. Um, 15 million euro fee and 6 million euro uh, salary payment. So, yeah, over 20 million euros for a five-month loan is outrageously expensive, I think. Yeah. Um, And I guess the good news is no one's going to pay that. You know, I honestly don't think there is a club who will agree to that rate. No, Um, I don't think it'd be mad considering what you could do with 20 million euros in the market. Like you could go some way to funding a really good player or find a couple of young gems or whatever it might be. You know, it's an extraordinary amount of money, but you know, at the same time, I understand the question, though. Yeah, same. You know, there's a there's a question of availability in January. Who's out there who is of the quality to come in? And there aren't too many, I don't think. Um, he, he is one. Like, you know, he is a player who I think everyone at Arsenal recognises has the right talent level to come in and, you know, improve our options. I think a big part of the appeal is he can play in a number of different positions. He can play through the middle, he can play withdrawn, he can play uh, on either flank. So he solves a lot of problems for Arsenal. But I do think that amount of money is just, well, I think it's a non-starter, to be honest. I, I don't think Arsenal will go near that figure for a lone player. No. Especially a lone player where, even if he does well, it's not like you've, it's not like that's going to be 50% of what it costs to get in permanently. It's not like it's a down payment on that. They'd still be looking for a huge, huge, huge package yeah. for you to take him off their hands full time. So I, I don't see a deal happening at the current figures. Um, I think if those figures come down in the next few weeks, as they're expected to, then I think Arsenal will be one of the clubs interested Um I guess it'll just be a question of sort of need and resource. You know, I think Manchester United are also following the case pretty closely. And is their need for a striker going to be greater? And is their financial capacity going to be greater? I don't know, with a takeover in the offing there. I mean, yeah. I mean, they did miss out on, on Gakpo. They were yeah, quite confident yeah. about him and they've missed out. So that might 
prompt them to pursue this one with a bit more vigor or go the extra mile, if you like, whereas mm-hmm. Arsenal might not quite feel like like doing that. I mean, and, and, and the agent is George Mendes, who has good links at both clubs now. You know, mm-hmm. did a deal with Arsenal in the summer over Fabio Vieira. He is very motivated to get the player out of Atletico because he's not having a good time there. Um, and he wants to play more. And I think he'll recognise that in order to do that, these numbers have got to change. What what I don't know is how this intersects with Arsenal's other plans, you know, whether mm. it's a case of either or in terms of Mudrick and Jao Felix, or could they do both? I think a lot of that depends on where these numbers on these two deals ultimately land. Um, yeah. But it's an interesting... It's an interesting one because I think Arsenal see a lot of parallels with the Martin Odegaard situation in terms of taking a, a young player whose career's slightly stalled in Spain and giving an opportunity to relaunch himself. The, the big difference is just the, the amount of money involved. But yeah, the true. question is interesting though, isn't it? Because it's like, mm. <laughs> is a 20 million euro gamble worth it if it could mean the difference between a first title in 20 years or not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not like you get the money back or anything, but what you would recoup from champions league and you know, the prestige and everything else. Um, yeah. And you, yeah, you get it back from champions league revenue. That's for sure. But I, I also think at the same time, how have we got where we are? We've got where we are by making sort of quite smart, long-term mm. recruitment decisions. Um, it is that balance, isn't it? That that you don't want to do a deal that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, like, you, you do want to stick to what's been working when it comes to your recruitment. Um, but they then have to consider the balance of, like, how quickly can Zhao Felix come in, be effective... I mean, a lot of players take time to settle in, you know? I agree. However and talented. The, yeah. And he is obviously very talented. But, like, if if he takes, you know, if the deal doesn't get done until mid-January or late January, and he takes four or five weeks, six weeks, maybe longer to settle in, like, it's very difficult to suggest you're going to get value for that money. Um and I think this would be, I mean, I may be wrong, but my gut says at the end of the window is when those numbers will start to come down. Mm. Um, so I think the interested clubs will be playing a waiting game to see if the the amount of money involved becomes more amenable to, to an agreement. Um, I think what's exciting and interesting famous last words here, but for Arsenal at this point in time is it really does feel like the first time in a long time that Arsenal would be the choice for a player. You know, like, Mm -hmm. for example, it was reported and it's true that Chelsea are following Mudrik and looking at that situation very closely and they haven't made a bid, but he's a player very much on their radar. But Mudrik's making it very clear in the way he conducts himself 
online and in interviews that Arsenal is his and his Instagram account. I've got a funny story about that, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, that Arsenal is his preference. And I feel like a player faced with that choice between Arsenal and Chelsea right now is choosing Arsenal. And to be honest, I think the same about Arsenal Man U. I mean, yes, Lissandro Martinez went there in the summer because of a link with the, the manager. But aside from that, you know, Arsenal is a great place for a player to come at the present. No, I think that's true. I do think that's true, that we are, we must be a really attractive destination for, for well, a lot of players. Um, yeah. But when you look at the way we're playing and what the potential of this, um, uh, you know, this team could have, um, some of the players that you could be coming in to play with, et cetera, et cetera, a manager who, you know, um, has turned people's opinions of him right on their heads, you know, um, it's an exciting place to be, I would say, and a place that a lot of young players would, would want to be. So, yeah, we're not like a poor relation anymore. We're not like the basket case. We're not looking for, oh, we need to, you know, get a couple of guys in who've been there, done that. They could stabilize us. We, You know, that's not how it will operate anymore. It should. Yeah. How it should. But, Tell me this uh, funny story about the incident. Oh, just that I accidentally outed myself. Um do you know about this? So basically, no. during the game, uh, during the Brighton game, a contact of mine sent me a screen grab um, of Mikhailo Mudrik's Instagram, and right. he put something up. It was a it was a screen grab of um, Arteta and Deserbi, and he'd written two great coaches. Right, you know, and that was Mudrik's latest case of batting his eyelashes at, uh, at Arsenal, Mikel Arteta. And I was like, oh, okay, that's quite interesting. I'm going to tweet that. So I tweeted uh, the screen grab that I'd been sent okay. by this friend <laughs> without realising that in the top left of the screen, um, you could see it was an iPhone screen grab, the last app used. Uh, and the last app used was the popular gay hookup app, Grinder. <laughs> so I... <laughs> So I tweeted, you'll be glad to know that the screen, thanks to Elon <laughs> Musk's new um, Twitter technology, we can now see that my tweet, which shows my last app used as Grinder, has now had 449,600 views. Wow. I mean, yeah. there must so, be one or two interested parties in there. What a way well, to come you know? out, I guess. And then, um, but the thing is, I, I sort of jokingly addressed it because so many people commented and I and I, uh, I was like, oh, it's not my screen grab, but I was just trying to uh, hook up with Martin Odegaard because he's playing so well and <laughs> I fancy him now. But uh, not many people saw that reply. And I, I got sent later in the day um, a, screen a screen grab from uh, a prominent gay journalist messaging a friend saying, OMG, James McNicholas is gay. <laughs> this is the representation I didn't know I needed. Or maybe he's just bi. I didn't know he was on Grinder, And like, <laughs> I, <laughs> the, my friend had to respond to this person to be like, no, 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 it's not his screen grab. It was an accident. But So oh, I'm sorry to disappoint the gay gooners and everybody else uh, who felt like I was providing some representation for them. I'm still boringly heterosexual, but. Uh, it was fun to, it was well, a, a, a I, fun mistake. I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. I mean, it, it would have been, 
you know, I guess if it was tr- if I had accidentally outed myself in that way, that would be quite terrible. But yeah, um, yeah, good fun. There is a lesson there, though, folks. There is a lesson there, which is there is a lesson. Do your own screen grabs, guys. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't credit. If I'd credited the person who'd sent me the screen grab, none of this misunderstanding would have happened. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's all on me and my lack of journalistic integrity. Well, there you go. Well, or is it? Or is it? Let's keep the mystery alive for those interested parties. After you've just completely uh, buried the mystery, you now want to keep it alive. Yeah, I want to keep it alive. Okay, I, I, you okay. know, I want to. Have that little bit of ambiguity. Keep that base going. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. All right. Uh, I've got another couple of questions on uh, transfers, though. Okay. Um, we have one from Cartoon Steve Bold, who's at Cartoon Boldy. He said, for all the talk of adding Mudrick and or Zhao Felix, isn't our biggest weakness the step down from Partey to any other holding midfielder? Do you, uh, do you expect to see us address that this month? And also Joe, who's at Red and White 11, said... Do we need stronger backup slash competition for Thomas Partey if we're going to mount a serious title challenge until May? Would taking advantage of Barcelona's financial situation, pause for laughter, and hijacking Frankie de Jong be an option? Love that idea. Oh, me too. I don't think it's really an option. I don't think it's going to happen, but man, I'd like it. I have no information to suggest it's on the card, but I would ask the question, why not? I mean, from everything I'm reading, Barcelona are in perilous financial danger and someone's going to have to go and it's going to have to be someone on a chunky salary. I mean, someone I valuable. Rafinha, funnily enough, I think Rafinha will be a candidate before long. Uh, <laughs> That's brilliant though. Isn't that yeah. fucking hilarious? Think, yeah, a- but I think he's not set the world alight there and he's on big, big money, like something like 250K, something like that a week. And they paid 50-odd million and for him. And they paid 50-odd million for him and they could probably get 50-odd million for him. Can so, they though? Mm, well, I guess Who's going to pay it? Man United already bought their own overrated Brazilians, so overpriced. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so we shall see. I think... I. I I like that idea a lot. And I also like the idea of adding a midfielder. It's something I looked into because when I looked at the squad on the sort of eve of the window, you know, and you know what Arsenal tried to do by adding a, a central midfielder in the summer as well. I thought, well, yeah, that's something that we could do with. The word I'm getting is that it's not particularly likely in this January window. It's not a huge focus. I think the concerns about the depth in the front line are considerably greater mm. internally. Um, but it is something that's going to have to be addressed. And I think it will be addressed in the summer, actually. Like my sort of bold prediction would be that Sambi Laconga will probably leave the club in the summer. Maybe that's not that bold. Um, mm. And that someone will come in in that area of the pitch. But if that was to happen in January, I, w- I wouldn't be sorry at all. What about you? I mean, the idea of uh, Frankie de Jong is uh, it's amazing. Uh, that would be a real madness, but I, you know, I don't see it. And my my gut feeling is that they will look at doing what they need to do in midfield in the summer rather than this window, because I do think the need is more pressing. Because you know, as it stands. Um, there's a heavy burden on 
on Eddie, as we know, is the only recognized center forward. Mm. There's also a heavy burden on Gabriel Martinelli and Bakayo Saka because we don't have Smith Rowe. We don't have um, uh, Reese Nelson. Marquinhos is, I don't know how ready they consider him. Um, so I, I, I do think that need is much, much greater than central midfield where I do agree there is a step down. But I also think that unless you, you're you bringing in somebody for a really big fee, like bringing in a really high-quality player, there's always going to be a step down from the way Thomas Partey is playing to whoever's yeah. next. You know what I mean? So that requires some serious consideration and, and investment, I think. Yeah, and I guess, I don't know how much fear this will assuage, but... I know that, you know, Zinchenko is considered someone who could play in midfield if required. Um, and I'll also be intrigued to see come the summer what kind of role Charlie Patino plays with the first team. Um, mm. you know, he's impressed at Blackpool, uh, you know, in patches. And I think, yeah, I would just be curious to see, you know, is he integrated? Is he loaned out again? He's a player in the middle of the pitch whose future and whose development and pathway mm. is, is probably going to be important as regards the first team. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I don't know if we'd be quite ready yet, um, but he is doing quite well, uh, quite well on loan. So mm -hmm. we'll have to, we'll have to see. All right. Uh, have you got a question? I, I probably do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I thought this was interesting. Carl Mitchell, bit of a random one, but... Can you see the club looking to extend the stadium capacity anytime soon? Tickets are at a premium. Demand is sky high. We could easily increase capacity by 10,000 plus and sell out each home game. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, that would, I don't know. I don't even know if it's possible. Is I think it? it's tricky. I think it's tricky. Um, um, like I've asked the question before and I think there are certain sort of architectural obstacles that would mean it would be a very significant renovation to substantially increase mm. the capacity. And so even, even introducing, say, standing yeah. wouldn't really alter the capacity as far as I'm aware. Yeah, so uh, no, there's the answer. I, I think if it was straightforward, could Arsenal sell another 10,000 tickets right now? Right now, yeah. Demand mm. is incredibly high. I've never been inundated with so many messages from people asking me if I can get them tickets. And, I, and I'll say this on air now. In almost all cases, I'm afraid I can't. I, like, mm. I wish I could, but these tickets are gold dust. And away from home, you know, where the allocations are smaller still, those tickets are yeah. changing hands for a lot of money at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, almost like being good increases <laughs> the the demand from fans. Um, yeah. Okay, here's one from Johnny B AFC who says, "Good morning, gents. The Saliba extension, good move or a worry on the contract situation? As I'm sure they'd rather have just got him locked in. And this is sort of on the back of reports that Arsenal have taken up the extensions on Bakayo Saka and William Saliba's contracts. I mean, is that just normal process? Yeah, there was a deadline, and they've pushed the button before the deadline. Um, I mean, I guess it would have been sort of suicide to not, you know, he would have been mm. six months from the end of his contract as of January 1st. 
he would have been able to negotiate with clubs overseas. So uh, the more interesting conversation is where are we at with his new contract? Yeah. Um, and I uh, mentioned this in, in a piece about contracts the other day, but we're still some way away with Saliba. And, you know, the, there's a disparity between the length of deal Arsenal want him to sign and the amount of money there that is put up against that, essentially, in the agent's mind. So, mm. I mean, that's the basis of any contract sure. negotiation, really. Um, that's the important one. That's the one they need to get sorted. Obviously, the contract option buys them a little bit of time, um, but not that much time, really. Mm. And we really don't want to get to the summer and this not be sorted, you know? Uh, yeah, I just saw a tweet there, um, somebody quoting James Ollie saying that Arsenal are confident about uh, Saka and Saliba yeah. uh, contracts. But I guess yeah. that's the kind of messaging they put out anyway, isn't it? So, Yeah, I mean, and I think they have reason. We just spoke about players from overseas wanting to mm. come and join the club. Arsenal have great reason to be confident. And I do believe all these players are happy at Arsenal. Um I think of 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 the various contract negotiations that are ongoing, I think my sense is Saliba is the one supporters feel most anxiety about. Mm -hmm. Maybe just because of everything that went on with him previously, he's a little bit less embedded in the club than a Saka or a Martinelli. Mm -hmm. um, and I share a bit of that anxiety, you know, you, Long-time listeners will remember I was sceptical about him even coming back. Obviously, he has done, and it's been fantastic for everyone involved. Um, so, yeah, I really hope they can get to an agreement sooner rather than later. I, I think if we get to within 12 months of the end, mm. it becomes a very awkward yes. position. Okay, let's do a few quick ones to, to sort of uh, see us out. Um, Josh, who's at Josh Robinson 87 says, I'm not concerned, so that's good. But he said, are you concerned that Fabio Vieira is very much on the fringes of the team? Didn't come on against Brighton and only came on against West Ham in the 88th minute. Hmm, I'm not really. I'm not really. I, 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 should I be? I don't know. Well, he's not. So maybe we should take our lead from, from Josh. I mean, I'd like to see him a bit more because he's a new player and I think he's quite an exciting player. But I just, you know, I wonder about where exactly he's going to come on and who he's going to, who he's going to replace. Um, so, yeah, I'm not that worried yet at all. One would imagine he'll play against Oxford. Yeah. Um, he may play in one of the league games if Saka is suspended. So we may see more of him yeah. over the coming weeks. He could come on against Newcastle and score the winner. He could well do. You're very know. welcome if he did. Um... What about this, Ed Wilson? With Balogun free scoring in France, is there an option for Arsenal to bring him back from his loan spell to provide competition with Eddie up top? Or is it best he remains at Reims for the season? I think probably it's best for him to stay where he is because he's doing very well. Like He's 10 goals and... You know, he's pretty high up the scoring charts in Liga. And I know, like, some people have been saying, yeah, well, look who else has got 10 goals. 
Alexandra Lacazette. Doesn't that tell you? But I think you have to look at the 10 goals Balogun is scoring for a team that's mid-table and, and also in the context of his own career. I think it's a great um, it's a great development year for him to play regularly, to go to a different country, new language, all the rest of it, and to be as effective as, as uh, he is. I mean, I think they've only scored 19 goals in the league this season, and he's got 10 of them. So... What he's doing, I think, is very impressive. And I think for his own benefit, for his own development, I think he should I think he should stay. I mean, I don't know if we can recall him, um, whether you'd have to do that before January, um, you know, to let the, the, the French side get another player in. But unless there's some kind of crisis, I can't see I can't see us um disrupting what's been a very good season for him. Yeah, I would imagine Arsenal probably can or at least had an opportunity to, a cut-off point where if they'd signified their intent to, they, they probably would be able to. But I, I think there's always reticence to do that when a player's doing well because mm. we spoke about long-term thinking and these decisions about loans are made with long-term development in mind. He's having a terrific time out in Liga and I, I think... Arsenal would prefer, if they can, to l- allow him to keep doing that. Mm. Let's see, of course, what what the transfer market brings um, and if that makes that more viable. Um, another kind of transfery one from uh, Khalil Kierans, who's at Lord Khalil, who said, Goodly morning, gents. Come this summer, we will be at our Van Dyke Allison stage. Or no, he says, will we be at our Van Dyke Allison stage where one or two big signings push us over the edge? He says, Clive, our friend at Clive PAFC, sees Declan Rice as a number eight. Could he be both a number six and a number eight for us? So between Partey, Rice and Shaka, you always play two of them. I mean, do you think that's a situation that Arsenal are looking at? Someone like Declan Rice at a club like West Ham who are having a bad season. He's been pretty open about wanting to, um, wanting to leave or wanting to play at the highest level, if you like. I mean, do you think that could be part of our summer planning? I'd like to think so. I mean, how old's Declan Rice? He's 23. He'll be 24 in a fortnight's time. Just entering the prime of his career. Mm. He's made it very clear he wants to play Champions League football next season. Um, It doesn't look like Chelsea, who in some respects are sort of the obvious choice for Rice, you know, going back to Chelsea. It doesn't look like they're going to be in the Champions League next season. It'll be a a hell of a second half of the campaign if they are to be. Mm. Um, Yeah, he is a big Chelsea guy, isn't he, Declan Rice? But then, you know, if you can turn your back on Ireland, you could turn your back on (laughs) Chelsea. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Listen, a player I really like and player who's definitely going to be on the market in the summer who's not going to be cheap you know mm. you're going to be talking i don't know the best part of 100 million pounds probably um small change bit of an english tax there to be fair i mean he's a good player yeah. but i don't think he's a 100 million pound player no but that's the reality of the english market isn't it i think mm. um unless west ham can get themselves relegated that might knock a few quid off the price if they're having a fire sale over there. But mm. um, I think, yeah, I think you're going to be talking at least 80 million for, for, for a player like Declan Rice. 
And Arsenal have shown, to be fair, they're prepared to pay that. I mean, look at what they paid, you know, 30 million for Ramsdale, 50 million for White. I think they recognise there is a premium on English talent and that often there is a value in English talent. So we shall see. Mm. We shall see. I, I, I would like that signing. I think he's a really good player and could step into this team in, in either of those midfield roles. Um, and as I say, I think midfield is something they will address in the summer. In terms of are we at the Alison van Dijk stage? Uh, in terms of our first 11, yes. Like it takes something pretty exceptional, I think, at this point to improve our first 11. Mm. But the general depth of the squad uh, still requires work. If we're to really compete with the likes of Man City in the longer term, um, I still think there are players in lower price brackets who can improve our squad, if not our first team. Yeah. Hmm. One to keep an eye on, I guess. One to keep an eye on. Um, uh, go on. No, no, no. I, I, I had one here from Alistair Woods, who's at Alleyway to who had asked if we would indulge in some Conte out or Potter out tweets. Conte out. Yeah, I, I have got some if have you're you? interested. I, I uh, Okay, go ahead. I've got a couple here as well. I think I'll... I'll, I'll uh... Okay, so this one is from Sam uh, THFC. Conte gets outdone by every manager he comes up against. There's no one who wouldn't fancy their chances against him. The bloke is useless. Get the fuck out of our club. Hashtag Conte out. Uh, Lee Herbert, I enjoyed. Couldn't give a fuck about trophies. Just want to enjoy football again. Hashtag Conte out. Um, Colin McKee. Honestly, Mr. Conte is looking out. He's realised the little fucker Levy will never back any manager. Time to go. Feck off with the rest of them. Feck off. Feck off. Time our supporters started letting this club know how we feel. Hashtag Levy out. Hashtag Conte out. Hashtag all out. Everyone out. All out. Just get everyone Um, out. I like that idea of just like getting rid of everyone so Tottenham as a club just ceases to exist. Yeah, I know. Um, This one was good. Antonio Conte has to be sacked if he doesn't have the decency to walk. He somehow managed to make the club worse than Mourinho did. (laughs) Fucking useless (laughs) mug. Our last three managers have genuinely been the worst in our history. Hashtag Conte out. Hashtag Enoch out. Wow. Um, And then uh, my, my last one. As usual, at Spurs, ruining the lives of all their fans. <laughs> Owners are a joke. Managers <laughs> joke. The players are a joke. Tottenham Hotspur are the laughing stock of the Premier League. Hashtag Conte out. I've got one here. He should be sacked. Man is a stubborn fraud who keeps using his dinosaur 90s tactics. He doesn't change or adapt. He won't sign a new deal. He doesn't care about us. He just cares about his reputation. Hashtag yeah. Conte out. <laughs> I've, I, for, for Potter, I've just got one because it was so good. I thought I can't top this. Um, and it's from a, a, an account. Uh, I think it's called George, the guy. And it just says, why was he appointed in the first place? Must be because he's American, I guess. Hashtag Potter out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I, love I really it. enjoyed that. Um no, great sort of schadenfreude to be had this weekend in the Premier League. Yeah, I like and this. Thank you, Unai. I would never be Potter out because I was never Potter in. 
<laughs> Spend 500 million all you like, he ain't doing nothing with it. Yeah, good man, you and I, Emery. We've always had a lot of time for, for him. Um, big result. Uh, big result for Aston Villa and obviously a very, very funny result for us. I was watching the end of it in the in the pub yesterday and then I watched Chelsea and they were they were just bad, Chelsea. They really were. I know they've got a lot of players missing, but the players they had out there, a lot of them were just like rubbish, second half in particular. Um, final one. Go on. This comes from the Discord from ATX Bergkamp Lover 69.69420, who says, Goodly New Year, gents. Inspired by James, my partner got me the below Magpie Never Kit. Um, the S in magpies didn't fit the club's character limits, so it just says magpie never rather than magpies never. And it's literally a, uh, an Arsenal uh, kit with magpie never uh, on the back of his head. Having not worn it for either the West Ham or Brighton matches, am I required to wear it for Newcastle or would this actually bring about bad luck? I think he's got to, right? It will seem like a bespoke shirt that he's had made specifically for the Newcastle game. Yeah, if you can't wear it for the Newcastle game. I think wear it for the Newcastle game and depending on the outcome of that game, we'll understand whether the shirt is blessed or cursed. Um, uh, Magpie never, number 13. Or burn it immediately. Yeah, it's got a number 13 on the back of it as well. Um, <laughs> oh, Magpie never 13. No, what bad luck can come from that? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, listen, I think we better leave it there. We do obviously have a big game tomorrow night. We'll preview that on Patreon a bit later. Uh, myself and Lewis will have a preview podcast for you. Uh, for now, uh, hope you're enjoying your new year, enjoying 2023, the best year that there ever has been so far anyway. Uh, a little way to go before we can make that claim at the end, I guess. But fingers crossed. If it carries on like this, Andrew. Yeah, exactly. What could, what could top it? Who knows? Five, five, five thirty-eight predicts that if the year carries on like this it will be the best year ever oh god We're and those guys them. know what they're talking yeah, about yeah they do yeah yeah bunch of fucking spoofers um <laughs> all right uh <laughs> let's leave it there uh thank you as always for listening and we'll catch you on the next one bye-bye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.